0: Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co hosts second-year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Toshi.
1: Hi, Dr. Parks. I mean, Aaron.
0: <laughs> Third-year psychiatry resident. Get that right. Yes, get that right, Toshi. Third-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Joshua Poole. Hi, Joshua. How are you doing, Dr. Parks? Third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Saloni Singh. Hi, Saloni.
2: Hi, Dr. Parks.
0: And Wait, now year...
1: everyone else is calling him Dr. <laughs> <laughs> Parks. I thought we were all
0: just calling him the That's ocean. my <laughs> emerges from a, a place of respect, so I respect it back. Thank you. Uh, second year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hi, Dr. Parks, I mean, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> the views expressed on Let's Get Psyched to those of the speaker, they do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, we're, ta- we're talking about something very controversial, and that's prescribing psychiatric medication to children. And we are very fortunate to have as our special guest, Dr. Carl Feinstein. For the past five years, Dr. Feinstein has been faculty attending and supervisor at UCR in the First Five program and health psychotherapy clinic. He is also an emeritus professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Stanford University Medical Center, and he is co-founder and chief medical officer for a startup called Trait, which is an AI-powered data analytics and clinical decision platform designed to improve outcomes for patients with neuropsychiatric conditions. Thank you for joining us tonight, Dr. uh, Dr. Feinstein.
3: I'm glad to be here. You can call
0: me Carl. Uh, thank, you, thank you for joining us, Carl. Uh,
2: Everyone just use first names from now on.
0: <laughs> I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the first question. I'm okay. going to ask the first question. I'm, I, I'm, I know that you doctors are going to do your thing, and I'm going to try to step away a little bit because you guys are going to have your shop talk. But I, I, I'm just going to oh, go, go for the, the, the clear thing that everyone's dying to ask. Dr. Feinstein, do you feel like children are over-medicated with psychiatric medications?
3: Yes, in some cases, yes. But in other cases, they may not be getting enough medication. Um, So some groups are discriminated against or who are are culturally uh, very resistant, just like they're not getting their COVID shots. They're not taking medicines that might help them. Um, So, but yes, it is over-prescribed. They're both problems.
4: I I really appreciate that. You said that, um, in my, before I decided to become a psychiatrist, I was a behavior therapist and I worked with, um, gang populations and, and, um, I felt like so many people there had trauma from street violence and were self-medicating because they had no access to the idea, even that they might have PTSD, that they might depression that psychiatrist was warranted. And so they were finding, they were, everyone kind of let, tried up all the drugs and landed on whichever one, kind of seemed to most approximate the psych medication, which you would think would actually kind of have worked for them if they hadn't gotten themselves into an addictive struggle.
5: That's a very interesting point. Like people's choice of self-medicating versus what they come to us to see. I don't know if that's valuable,
3: but- I also want to say about myself, is that although this topic is psychiatric medication for children, I I am very much a f- uh, proponent of psychotherapy, often psychotherapy first. I just want to be very clear about that.
1: Mm-hmm. That's like, what, what most what, of our training says to do. Therapy. What's first the most
0: underused? Kids. What's the most underused psychotherapy for? What, what what type of condition do you believe? Ah,
3: most underused psychotherapy.
0: Like, for, if you had to tag it to a condition or to a diagnosis w- or population,
3: I think. Uh, uh, I have this. Is, that's a very good question. There, I haven't thought about it that way. To me, um, ADHD is um, a complex set of conditions which triggers a knee-jerk reaction that medication should be tried first, or it's the only thing that can be tried. But uh, actually, for younger children, it should it should probably should not be tried first. Um, and uh, so, uh, I guess. I would, I, would, I would say that. I'm not, I'm not saying that medication for ADHD, I want to say ADHD for medication can be very useful, but I just want to also make clear that this is not medication versus psychotherapy. We're, we're focusing on the compli- complex issue of medication, but we're, I want to put it in a broader context.
1: Right. Can I, can I also pop in here, just like I did in the last episode, I want to add some context to why we've asked Dr. Feinstein to join us for this episode. Dr. Feinstein is the foremost expert in this county on prescribing to young children. Um, what I've heard before I met Dr. Feinstein practicing here in training was that when people have a hard time, uh, when they feel uncomfortable prescribing to young children, they send them to Dr. Feinstein. Uh, they refer them to Dr. Feinstein because he is so such an expert.
5: You everybody should have seen I know we're on the radio show. Everybody should have seen the resistance that came over Carl's face when he <laughs> said that. It was like he was being poked with hot,
3: you know, pokers. I I I I I I thank you for saying that tosha anyhow despite the fact that I uh, I don't consider myself primarily a psychopharmacologist. Uh, I, I consider myself true, a, yeah. a, a, treater, a, a healer of young children, basically, um, and their families. But um, I think I, if I have accumulated uh, a reputation for that, it isn't because I know more psychopharmacology or neuropsychopharmacology. It's because of that I put so much stress in developing a sense of trust and alliance with both the parents and the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, as that, uh, and that I think is the reason why people will give me, people refer, will come to me and even if they're resistant to medication and the, the therapist has recommended it and we can have a good talk and they know I'm not going to disrespect them or devalue their opinions.
2: Yeah, and, and uh, Dr-
3: Dr- go oh, for it, Celine.
2: Oh yeah, the article that you the or the chapter that you wrote, Dr. Feinstein, about this about this therapeutic alliance and rapport with the patient and the parents. You know, it. I think there was a statistic in there that for treatment outcomes, nineteen to fifty six percent of the treatment outcome can be accounted for uh, by a positive or strong treatment alliance.
3: Yes, there's a, there's still. Still work need, needed to be done on that, uh, but it is true in the sense is that without a good therapeutic alliance, you will not get, on a very practical, basic level, you will not even get adherence to taking the medication. Uh, that's mm-hmm. true with children and adults, but it's it's very true with the children and their parents and trying to work with them. Uh, so... Uh, but it's but it's probably much more than that. It's just the positive frame and the sense of working together to help the child that contributes to the child getting better.
4: So for our um, non. Uh, doctor listeners out there, non-therapist listeners, the therapeutic alliance is the warmth and the connection that exists between the patient and the doctor. And you can check out our past episodes on Insight and some of our psychotherapy episodes
3: to hear more about that.
1: It also has to do uh, on the bond of working towards a common goal.
3: Yes. So basically, I don't always start... If I'm introduced to, I tend to work with young children, so you can push me to talk about older children too, but the young children are the ones that I spend the most time with. I will often start out with, how can I help you? Um, And I want to make it very, very clear. I I, I explain to them that I want to understand in their own words what the problem is that they're coming for, uh, or what the questions they have, and I want to give the parents a chance to speak to that. And uh, for the young children, it's very hard for the children to speak to it. But for the older kids, they have a lot of questions about it, too. Uh, so we always start there. And uh, they then, uh, hopefully, they will use their, their meeting with me to talk about medica- possible medication to ask the questions that they have. And I also have to appreciate, which is why this is such a controversial topic, is that when when parents bring their kids in for treatment, they they're not it's not a blank slate. They have a huge context. They've been on the internet. They've spoken to other people about it. They've gotten very pros and cons. They've gone to good websites. They've gone to anti websites. They've gone to anti anti websites, and. Um, They've, um, they've heard all kinds of attitudes and opinions about medication and all that has to be processed uh, you, um, if you want before you can develop a therapeutic alliance um, I do want to talk about the therapeutic alliance a little bit more because it has it does have a lot to do with warmth and rapport but it has a lot to do with trust also uh, trust and feeling listened to. Um, uh, and that you uh, have a set, you have a framework for how you approach uh, talking with their with their clients that is predictable and respectful. Uh, uh, and alliance also involves having a common goal. You can be, you can be, you can like each other very much, but you, if you're not wanting to treat the same thing in the child, then you don't ha- really have an alliance. Right.
5: I'd like to add I think that that brings up a really interesting point with just the medication in general is that uh l- adherence for instance like if you're trying to treat a child for ADHD or for depression and getting getting a young child to take a medication every day is very difficult you basically can't I mean if a parent can't get them to brush their teeth every day how are you going to get them to take a pill every day I think Without the uh, therapeutic alliance between the parent and the psychiatrist, it's going to be nigh impossible to to have adherence and then ultimately get better. So I think that common goal does ultimately talk to this as well.
3: That's right. The parents can only get the only parents who can get their kids to brush their teeth are the ones who really believe it's important, the right thing well, to do to brush their teeth. You know,
4: and I think we have to stress that importance. I think, you know, parents come to us because there's a problem. But and and we we are required to, and we see it as part of our job to talk to people about risks and benefits and what are the side effects of the medications. And a lot of that can be scary. But what I don't hear us saying as much that I wish we were saying more in the same way that I was talking about my patients before I was a doctor who we're landing into these self medication slots that seemed similar to the medication that I might have chosen for them. Um, people with unmedicated ADHD, when they grow to be adults, are this is per uh, the Smart Kids resource, they're 78% more likely. To, which is, by the way, sorry, it's smartkidswithld.org. Um, it's, a, it's a good resource online. And and there's, there's 78% more likely to be addicted to tobacco, 58% more likely to use illegal drugs. And there, there's a whole list of these things. It's not just this. It's like it, it extends to job success, divorce rates, um, overall measures of life satisfaction. There's a real cost to not... And, you know, ADD is an important one to talk about because a huge percentage of the child and adolescent psychiatry work that's done is with medication is ADHD medication. There's a real cost in terms of overall life outcomes to not taking these medications. I think that's something that we need to be presenting.
1: I think similarly that similar to that, you can talk about PTSD as well. The cost of not treating PTSD, I see. Okay, here's an example. Real life example. In my time working with children, I have diagnosed one teenager with bipolar disorder. Whereas if I go to a juvenile correctional facility, pretty much all of those kids... I end up diagnosing with PTSD. I mean, it's incredible. So untreated PTSD. Um, I mean, if if you aren't able to get a handle of that while the kid's in school, um, and then they start struggling. I mean, the pipeline to to that struggle and you know uh, poor outcomes. Same same thing. Yeah, the opportunity cost, right, of not of not treating this young child that's developing.
4: Tosha, you were comparing the rates of PTSD in your normal clinic to in the juvenile facility. Is that right? You said bipolar, but I think you meant PTSD there.
1: No, I I was talking about um, I think a lot of people who are outside of the world of psychiatry think that we are spending a lot of time as child psychiatrists diagnosing bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, in young children and teenagers, when actually that's not really the case. Um, we're di- are The most common disorders seen in kids are depression, anxiety, and uh, I think there's a lot of underdiagnosed PTSD. I
4: would certainly second that with, I mean, it depends on the population, right? But a lot so, of the most underserved populations have so much trauma they're carrying around.
3: Two comments here. One is that there's a hu- just supporting what Tosha says about PTSD, uh, there's a huge literature. It's probably, the- right now, one of the most very important topics in child psychiatry and child mental health is what's called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And most people who have a psychiatric disorder have had adverse childhood experiences. So... Even if it's not to the level of PTSD, it has affected their development in a way uh, which has caused a lot of problems. The second point I want to make is uh, regarding uh, the, the wonderful uh, uh, review of statistics about the proneness to addiction to untreated uh, kids, um, because that is one of the, that is probably the single biggest problem. This is just for ADHD. We're talking about. Um, uh, that the parents the thing that they are most afraid of is that their kids it, it's the pathway to addiction so it's a, it's a huge paradox there and it, it it's a constant it's it, it's you have to keep your balance and equanimity because um, almost every parent is going to be worried about that and um, it's you have to you you have to address it over and over and over again in a sympathetic way and just review why they think that way and present the facts. I'm glad you brought up that point, Alan. It was a very good one.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about prescribing psychiatric medic- medication to children with Dr. Carl Feinstein. So I want to ask uh, Dr. Feinstein, do you feel that uh, there's there is an overdiagnosis? Of bipolar disorder, and uh, what are the choices that a a psychiatrist has in those situations if they're seeing some of those symptoms? And you know, why is there an overdiagnosis? And also, has the changes in the DSM helped with that overdiagnosis of bipolar problem?
3: Well, that's a huge topic, and there are many opinions about that. Uh, I would say historically, in the last twenty years or twenty five years, there's uh, there was, and probably still is, a lot of momentum towards diagnosis of bipolar disorder, but there have been advances about that, and um, they're slowly uh, uh, they're slowly making their way into practice. For example, a lot of we just had a wonderful grand round, a uh, wonderful journal club at uh, UCR Psychiatry about uh, severe mood dysregulation disorder or, or disruptive mood dysregulation disorder that there are a lot of kids who were diagnosed as bipolar who really do not have some of the symptoms of bipolar. Instead, in fact, if, if you, you follow them for a long time and look at their family history, they're more prone to depression and anxiety, especially depression. And these kids have are very moody, irritable, they have meltdowns all the time, they're very emotional, and it, it can be a huge problem they were all diagnosed as bipolar disorder, uh, because it was felt that um, it was that childhood onset was very different from adult onset. Um, so they just changed the criteria for child bipolar disorder. It does I don't want to say that childhood bipolar disorder doesn't exist. Um, so I don't want to. I don't want to go down that way. But Push is absolutely right. That, it is, that there are other much more common types of problems in children. Adults with bipolar disorder will often describe that they remember that they had their first symptoms when they were uh, uh, older kids or teenagers, even if they didn't manifest them so clearly. So uh, I, I'm, I hope I'm addressing this, very, this topic very, uh, in this whole way.
1: Can we also have a discussion on consent? I just want to hear your thoughts, Dr. Feinstein, on um, what do you think about, you know, speaking about medication adherence and everything, I think that brings into the conversation consent. Can children consent for medications? What part do they play? Are they able to fully understand the situation to consent appropriately?
3: Well, uh, um, first of all, Children covers a pretty broad range. uh, (laughs) There's a big difference between a 17 year old and a three year old about uh, medication. Um, um, I think that the first steps towards consent are with the parents. The parents have to agree and uh, want to give it a try in good faith and in a a trusting kind of a way but uh, they want their child to brush their teeth with some toothpaste that looks really that has a lot of stigma attached to it, or something like that. Every day, <laughs> they, they they have to believe in what natural toothpaste. toothpaste. They have to believe it. So so the, uh, the parents come first, except for the older teenagers, where the where the, the where the teenagers' view is really uh, uh, quite decisive. But you're
4: trying to get both the consent and the assent. And for our listeners, assent is kind of the word for consent when the person does, can't actually consent in our current way of thinking about it because of their lack of the cognitive ability to be sort of trusted with that decision. Like oh, a child they
3: still have to sign on. I can tell you at the preschool clinic, although it drives me crazy, the three or four-year-olds have to sign this little pad that says they consent which i think is overkill <laughs> and uh, 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 in, in a lot of that's rates.
4: fascinating who who but, requires that
3: the, well i uh, most uh, most mental, most health agencies require it and certainly uh, uh, riverside county does that but, uh, but but but, it, but uh, i'm not criticizing riverside county although it sometimes it's pretty hard because the kid can't even write and they don't know the letters yet so so oh, kids, are, but but <laughs> uh, but um but you have to decide with the parent what it is you're going to tell the child about the medicine and why they're taking it. Uh, it's not a solo act, uh, uh, parents can be very, very helpful if they, if if if, if they, ha- if you have a good understanding with them, they can suggest that um, maybe that um, it's going to help them concentrate better with their schoolwork, or maybe it'll. Get them fewer detentions from school, or they'll be able to make. It'll help them um, get their homework done on time, um, or or whatever. Or or help, or they won't. Or they won't get upset so much because they won't be getting in trouble so much. There are various ways that it can be explained. That is not the same thing as explaining, you know, what the chemical mechanism of action is, but in fact, many. we don't really know what the medical chem, uh, medical mechanism of action is. We, we often try to give an explanation based on our understanding of neuroscience, but it isn't. And parents might ask, so we'll say, you know, it's a, it affects the dopaminergic system or the catecholamine system in a certain way. But um, that could be helpful to a few parents, but most of the time, uh, you you try to explain in you try to explain how it's going to help them. Uh, feel better about their problem, the thing that they're coming for treatment for, and what the side effects of it might be, and then you have to, then you have to talk to the child about it too, because I can tell you I've had a lot of in my career, uh, which is a pretty long one, there are a lot of six and seven year old kids who put that pill in their cheek and they don't swallow it, you know, so um, or they throw or they wait till their parents leave. Leave the room, and they and they and the parent, and then they put it in the pillow behind the couch or something like that. So, kids, kids, uh, unless they have to buy on and buy into it to some extent too. Some more, some will be more compliant than others, and parents can supervise it more closely. But I think it's important for even for the little children to try to explain it, uh, take them seriously, and for the older children, where it's stigmatizing and where they may feel that if they're giving a medication. It just proves what their parents have been telling them, that they're crazy or psycho or whatever. Uh, So you really have to spend a lot of time getting buy-in, or you will never succeed in getting uh, teenagers to take a medication if they don't really uh, have a a treatment alliance with a doctor and want to seriously give it a try.
1: I want to say, too, that I have had kids who don't want to take a medication. I don't know why. It's usually – kids with ADHD who don't want to take the stimulant. And I, I let them try do a trial off the medication. And if the parents still want to, them to take that medication and the kid doesn't, I tell the kid, you got to come up with an agreement with your parents. Um, and I tell the parent, you got to come up with an agreement with your kid. You know, I'm not here to force medication.
3: I want to point out about ADHD is that it is a it isn't it is correct to feel that child psychiatrists are doing most of the prescribing of these medicines for ADHD. The vast majority are being prescribed by pediatricians. And uh, sometimes people will choose to come to a child psychiatrist, but many times the parents will feel much more comfortable getting it from their pediatrician.
4: Despite the fact that the pediatrician has significantly less training in this, in this area of prescribing.
3: That might be so. I think... But some of them do, but I think the main thing that we offer uh, is that we will spend more time getting buy-in uh, and developing a treatment alliance. It's not just we, we prescribe the pill and we see the kid in six months and we renew it automatically, you know, electronically, and the kid doesn't take it. Uh, we, we follow our patients more closely and we work with them um, to get them to work to do the treatment. I think it's remarkable that I hear so often about
5: kids not wanting to take their stimulant medication where it seems like most of my adult patients, I'm doing everything in my power to stop <laughs> them from asking me for stimulants because I don't want to deal with it. And the kids are just like, I would rather not do it. And I, I don't understand sort of... I, wondering- I, think,
1: I think What? in, in my opinion, sorry uh, to jump in here. I, want, I definitely want to hear your opinion, Dr. Feinstein. I just want to say when I see kids with depression or anxiety, they want to feel better and they want treatment. They want help. Whereas kids with ADHD, they're really, well, the ones that I've seen, they've been really concerned about how it looks that they need a medication and that they take a medication.
3: Uh, you don't have to worry about my disagreeing with that. I think that's a very interesting point, but there's stigma to other medications too. It's very, I can tell you, it's not a, It's not a walk in the park to get a teenager to take an antidepressant medication even if they are practically bedridden and unable to leave their room Uh, they're so depressed they still it's still you have to work with them because they tend to feel that taking medicine somehow proves that they're psycho or something like that there's so much stigma attached to it Um, you know I think I think that your your point is most right, Tosha. Because if they take the medication and they feel and they feel like it helps them, if they buy in and give it a chance, then they become an ad, then they become they don't need to be monitored. Their their motivation improves to do it. But a lot of kids, <clears throat> a lot of kids who have ADHD, um, and a lot of parents this way too. They they feel like the misbehavior that a child with ADHD has. Is a moral failing on the child? They just need to learn how to behave better. Um,
1: That's a great point. I, th- I think to big- piggyback off that, Dr. Feinstein, for kids with ADHD, they've had it their whole lives, whereas kids with depression and anxiety, it's episodic, right? So they can remember a time where they felt better or you know normal themselves. So I think they have that ability to compare too. And kids with ADHD, another big thing that I always talk to parents about is this learned sense of being wrong or there's something inherently wrong with them that they learn from failing at challenges that other kids around them in their class are succeeding at. So when they have to take a medication, it's like more evidence that there's something wrong with them.
3: I think, I think that's good point.
2: Um. Yeah. And I think also to piggyback off of that Tosha, um, Like you said, the kids with anxiety and depression can remember a time that they felt healthy and had a good mood and kids with ADHD have had it their whole lives. On the flip side of that, it's this, you know, looking to the future, kids with ADHD Can't really see a future without the medication. It's a chronic condition they're going to have. um, And they're going to probably need the medication, you know, I mean, not necessarily for life, but for multiple years. Whereas with the kids with anxiety and depression, if they're hesitant about medication, you can talk about, well, we can taper you off of this medication in the future when you're feeling better and, you know, that sort of thing.
3: I think that's an excellent point about the how having to take the medicine for a long time. Um, That's the issue with other medications too. And a lot of parents are very afraid that their child is, when they come, that their child is going to grow up, having to take medicine their whole lives. Right. Uh, But actually, the advantage of these medicines is that they are very easy to start and stop. And I don't, I don't approach it that way. I say, let's cross that bridge when we come to it. First, we don't even know whether this medicine is going to help, and we can probably find out within a week or two whether this medicine is helping your child. And if you don't like it, you're the boss. You're the parent, and mm-hmm. you can stop it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's all the time we have on this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Tonight we talked about prescribing psychiatric medication to children with our special guest, Dr. Carl Feinstein. Thank you to our co-host, Dr. Toshiyamaguchi, joshua paul Saloni singh and alan atkins if you have comments questions or suggestions for the show you can write us at get psyched on kucr@gmail.com. and you can listen to past episodes of let's get psyched on your favorite streaming platform if you like tonight's show please follow us and post a review this episode was recorded remotely in our homes our producer is elliot fong our production assistant Ismail gonzalez i've been your host psychologist dr aaron parks tune in next week for another edition of let's get psyched